All right, brother. So thank you for joining this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast. We have Matt Thomas, author of When That Day Comes. No, no. Mine is, oh, I just got When That Day Comes. Um, Mine is Interceptors. Interceptors. Oh, my God. Oh, we're going to have to redo that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. I just just got off the, you know what? That's Chris Hoyer. Mm Mm-hmm. So Chris and I, we were in an event together and we traded books. So I signed his, he signed mine. So when you said that, I was like, oh, I literally have that book right here somewhere. <laughs> I have so many authors. Oh, That's good. funny. No I'll probably just leave that in there because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have so many authors. I'm sorry about that. So it's ah, Interceptors, gosh. Matthew Thomas. Is it Matt or Matthew on the book? Uh, either. Uh, it's Matthew on the book, yeah. It's Matthew on the book. Yeah. All right. And you got, we were just saying, 30 years law enforcement experience uh one agency or more than one no all the same agency i started there as a young 20 year old and i've been there since man that's incredible man uh and you were saying in 1998 you you were in the swat unit yeah yeah so we were talking about when you started you said you started in 98 so i had already been at it for about five years and uh you don't look that old (laughs) i feel that old bro um but yeah in 98, I was, uh, my primary assignment was uh, traffic and interdiction because those were kind of combined. So I would do uh, DUI details, speed details, all the fatal accidents. We would also do uh, drug interdiction on our highways because we're in a, a high drug area. What and, state uh, are you in? Arizona. Arizona, so okay, I'm, yeah. I'm down so, in uh, Southwest. Yeah, I know that's a big, um, big hub. Yeah, Everybody yeah. passes through that. We love Arizona. We've uh, gone hiking um, in Phoenix, the hole in the rock. Yep. Yep. It's a great spot. It's a small little park. You get up there so fast. Right. And and you're like, this is it. And then you walk back that it really, it literally takes like 10 minutes to get to the hole. Yeah. And then yeah. um, my favorite Valley was South mountain. Oh yeah. I grew up just down by South mountain. So I, uh, I was like, man, this is what I'm here for. We did that that trail down the down. There was some guy. We we walked it at a, at a good clip. Me and my lady, we walked it at a really good clip. But there was some guy jogging, you know, up oh, yeah. and down, and he had did a couple loops. And I was like, man, that guy's in sick shape. But I I was feeling the energy of the rock and just like the sun was. It was just the perfect day. The sun was going down. Yeah. Um, the big joke every time we walk past a hole is. Uh, Oh, what can we stick in that hole? <laughs> like I should stick my fingers and wiggle them in that hole. And then I'm like, I should stick my toes in that hole. <laughs> That's the big joke. Every, yeah. every hole that we pass, it's like, you know, something's living in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. And everything out here bites or stings, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I know about Arizona. So what I know about Florida, which is the other place that I would move after New York, is I know that you do not go swimming in any body of water <laughs> except for <laughs> except for the ocean and even that's risky but any yeah. any little small pond is going to have a gator in it right or right. or an or an anaconda python yeah. no, I, oh I got no love for snakes man <laughs> you've been to florida i have my daughter lives in tampa okay all right yeah, yeah i love tampa um tampa's cool I like Miami. I could see myself living in Miami, uh, Puerto Rico for like six months out of year. Did you know 
this is important for all the entrepreneurs out there that if you live in Puerto Rico for six months out of the year and export goods out of there, now I'm not an accountant, but you don't pay federal taxes. What? All right. Yeah. So that's why a lot of businesses actually have a, um, you need to be a resident of Puerto Rico for six, like six months in a day. So the plan is to be a snowbird there and then live you know, maybe five months in New York or, or Arizona, wherever else I have a house. Um, I plan on having a couple, a couple spots, you know, maybe San Diego, Arizona, Colorado. My my, uh, wife and I, our plan was Mexico, right? We were going to have a spot down in Mexico because she's of Mexican descent. Mexico is crazy though. Yeah. But uh, yeah, after, especially after writing my book, uh, there's no way I'd live in, I wouldn't live long in Mexico. Let's just put it that way. Well, um, what does your book go into? Is there a particular uh, story? Yeah, it's all about uh, our fight against the cartels down here. So uh, we're in a very unique position in our county. So where we're positioned, we're not on the border. We're about 50 to 60 miles off the border. Uh, But because of the terrain, because of Indian reservations, um, we are essentially right on the border the way we deal with them. And so the Sinaloa cartel is the strongest cartel in our area. They run this area. And uh, we've been battling them. Well, for my whole career, we've been fighting against them. They've just gotten more and more powerful. And, uh, you know, they, the book kind of goes into some of the operations we did against them. It goes into some of their structure, how we see them uh, structured, some of the religion that they've kind of bastardized and made their own narco religion. Uh, And yeah, it, it goes into all that stuff. And so I don't, I don't think they dig me. I am going to, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to, uh, go into my Amazon and order that book right now. Uh, that photo that's on the cover, were you in the military also? I was not. I've, I've just done this my whole career. That photo is actually from, uh, because I did, I, w- I was on our SWAT team for 18 years and uh, started as just, you know, a regular SWAT guy and then uh, eventually became a team leader and uh, eventually became the team commander. So I was running the team and then that's when I promoted into this position and I had to retire from the team. And so that picture that's on the cover is actually uh, a photo shoot I did with a buddy of mine who uh, has his own uh, kind of videography and photography company. And he does shoots for companies, sunglass companies, gun companies. And so I was doing a photo shoot for him and had my gear on and stuff. And so he got a couple good pics and- It's a uh, sick photo, uh, it's a sick photo. Yeah, the, the, the photo came out good. I, I had a different photo when I first started my cover. No. And uh, Katie no. Pavlich is a friend of mine and, and she's a Fox News contributor and she's written a couple of books and she actually did my forward. And uh, when, I, when I bounced my original idea off her, she said, that's a no-go. And she said, send me some pictures of yourself. And uh, she said, I know it's gonna be counterintuitive to, to have some, you know, look at me photos. Uh, but she kind of guided me and and that's the one we came up with. Yeah, that was a good decision, man. That that is a sick, sick photo. I appreciate and, that. Yeah, man, I love it. It looks like the cover of a video game. Unfortunately, I know it's <laughs> not a game. I know it's real life. Yeah. Um do you think I, I, I spoke with a I think he was with ATF or I can't remember what organization, Victor Avila. Mm-hmm. You know, him? Yep. Uh, I know of him. Yeah, I, he's I don't running. Well. He's running for U.S. Congress. I, I think Congress. Yeah. And I believe he was ice. Uh, ice. For, OK. Yeah. 
So he talked about operations down there and his book is really good. Did you read his book? Yes, I did. He and I, uh, we met again at an event and uh, traded books and uh, dude, he, uh, he's legit. Like he was down in Mexico and uh, he, him and his partner got kind of ambushed, ambushed on the highway. Yeah. By the cartels and shot up and uh, man, he survived a, a hell of an ordeal. Not a lot of people live to tell those stories. Yeah. His book, the story is amazing. And I, I bought his book right away. I'm actually, uh, I'm a big believer in supporting those other Leos out there that write books and, uh, Oh, it says duplicate order. Cancel. Oh, already ordered. Yeah. I must've already ordered it or All right, oh, it's arriving on Tuesday. All right. Ooh. I love Amazon for that reason. <laughs> uh, I have like, I, I once heard someone say unlimited budget for books. My budget for books is almost unlimited. Right. I buy one almost every other week. I, I would say every two weeks and I don't get through them that fast. I'm probably doing about a a book every two, every two, three weeks, maybe That's a book good. a month. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm in between like three different books right now. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, dude. I try not to do that because I end up getting confused on subject matters and mixing it all together. And uh, well, I heard I heard a uh, a guy talking about how you read faster, and he's like, first of all, you don't have to read it cover to cover. That right. is like nonsense that they they drill into you in in school, and like somebody put that rule you don't have to read it cover to cover like the publishers put that rule in (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) there is a lot of fluff and sometimes you can just read the um first chapter at the beginning of every paragraph and sometimes this the last chapter and you get the gist of the book um it depends on how good the book is and if i can get an audio book you you were mentioning uh i was talking about your sweet setup i i love it it looks like you're a podcast professional pro (laughs) Uh, you say you've been on about a dozen different shows, maybe 15. Yeah. Yeah. About 15. It looks like you're a pro. Um, (laughs) that is a great way to sell your book, by the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the funny thing is this, uh, the audio book, I just, I knew I wanted to do it. Um, but I was just happy to get the book done and get it out there. And then uh, I started doing podcasts and started talking to people and dude, I'm missing conservatively, I'm probably missing 50% of my audience because, uh, and I'm one of them. I listen to books uh, more than I ever read books. So wow. I know I got to get it done. So your camera that you switched to, you set the, you set this all up just to record the audiobook, or was the camera set up for another purpose? No, the camera setup was for podcasts and uh, there's a few dudes, a few LEOs that have podcasts that I normally join. Like I'll jump on there once a month or once every couple months. And uh, sometimes we'll do some lives where they'll run it live on like their YouTube channel. Uh, and so have you been on one cop, two donuts, Eric Levine? That's the dude that told me, bro, you got to get a better camera. And so <laughs> he sent me some links and I ended up with a better camera because he and I did a, a deal one night where we were talking about cartels and stuff. Yeah. He's a really good guy. Yeah. My other camera. Yeah. I've been on, I've been on his show. He's been on my show a couple of times. And we just keep bouncing back and forth. Uh, you know, every time I'm with someone that's in the business of podcasting, they uh, always give me new ideas. And uh, he's crushing it with YouTube. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his numbers are fantastic, man. Yeah, he's doing great. Um, I 
I'm still working on getting my numbers up. So I have to get some sponsors. And in order to get sponsors, you got to get better numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More yeah. listeners. Eric's been uh, doing good with all that stuff, man. He, and he's kind of been schooling me on some of the stuff. Because like I said, uh, you know, being my book is self-published. So uh, you find out very quickly that you are your own marketing team. Uh, yes. You're, you're everything. So uh, it takes a lot of this kind of stuff to get the word out there. So the advantage of self-publishing, and uh, David Goggins talked about this in one of his talks, uh, the publishing company wanted to give him uh, a $3 million uh, upfront, whatever it is that they call it, uh, advance, I guess, and 15% royalties for every book sold after that, something to that effect. And instead, he decided to marketed himself so he was selling copies after doing talks and he ended up making like 30 million off of you can't can't hurt me you know so like 3 million versus 30 million uh and for me it wasn't it's a little bit about the money but it was more uh well a couple things i didn't want to like i had an option because i got introduced to some big publishers and they sent me this packet right and this packet was like a a damn mortgage packet, man. There was, you know, just page after page after page. I felt like I was writing a book again. And uh, you see in all of that language that a, you're forfeiting a lot of your rights and yes. B, you are um, not getting the profits and C, yes. you're expected to provide them with a lot of how you are going to provide marketing for this. What, what are yes. your connections, all that stuff. What's your email list? What's your email list look like? Yeah. So if you're going to do all of that work to market the book anyway, you might as well just collect all the profits yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, uh, I I can't get too much into uh, what I'm doing right now because it's all in the very infant stages, but uh, it worked out well for me. And I think it will, it will ultimately work out the best it could because I got contacted by a production company and said, Hey, we have a client interested in talking to you who owns the rights to your book. And I said, I do. And they said, so no publishing company. And I said, Nope, I'm self published. I own the copyright. I own the rights. And they were like, well, that makes things simple. And so I talked to this uh, client and this client had uh, been turned onto my book by a friend through a friend through a friend. And, uh, they are looking at it and wanting to possibly do something with it in that realm. And so, ah, it's awesome, man. Hey, (laughs) that's incredible. Yeah. I'm hoping man that, you know, that everything goes well, but I know it's the early stages. Yeah. But dude, that, you know, having the rights, me owning my own rights is huge when you, when you talk to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I wanted to see if I could do the clapping effect. It's not working. I just, I have an effect here where I can make it clap. That's, uh, that's, I'm so excited for you. And I just want everyone that just heard that to pick up on the fact that, you know, everyone has a story. And if you write it correctly, it can eventually become something bigger than what you initially thought it was, whether that's you standing on stages and giving presentations or whether that's a Netflix special or like a a movie, possibly you just never know what it can turn into. And that's why I encourage everyone out there is like, just start writing your story right now. Take inspiration from Matt Thomas, get his book interceptors. 
I got it right this time. Yep. Yeah, got I got it right this time. So I know who I'm talking to. <laughs> It's all good, bro. It's a Sunday. It's been a long week. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been a long day. Uh, this is my third conversation of the day. I try to pack in as many as I can in a single day because I still, uh, I'm still out there doing the job just like you. You haven't retired yet, huh? No, no. I got a couple more in me, I think. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. So I, I, I think uh, right now I'm looking at 25. 25 looks like that'll be the year that I'll, uh, I'll call it quits that I'll hit my 32 in that year. And that's, you know, we max out at 32. So I think that's a good year for me. And I'm kind of with the book uh, and, and like you spoke to uh, minus, you know, the possible production company thing. Um, I'm also starting to get more engaged in speaking and not just on the book because, you know, cartel is a niche subject matter, Yeah. Uh, but I also do a lot of leadership stuff. And so I've been speaking more, I was just about, I was about to ask, what do you speak about leadership? What else? Yeah, I do uh, leadership culture change uh, because when I moved into this position, uh, we had to go through a big culture change in our agency for our leadership. Um, so for like our lieutenants and captains and such, uh, we had to change the culture quite a bit because we came out of some bad leadership. And uh, so I had the last seven years I've spent kind of changing the culture of an agency, which as you know, in law enforcement, man, that's no easy task. Um, and, uh, and then of course on the cartel stuff and some of those operations and, and how that evolves. Uh, that's really cool. So I just partnered with another guy that I work with and we are starting an agency to book speakers and get them more speaking gigs, but we're only going to work with Leo's. So I'm actually making this announcement on so initially we'll just work with leos and then then we'll you know stretch out i got a couple firemen buddies you know the oh yeah, yeah. the second the second like food and how to cook <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is before i started uh connecting with them on the podcast i didn't realize how much uh ptsd they have and and like all the trauma that they deal with and stuff. So I used to, I used to make fun of them too, because I used to work the midnights and I would go into the firehouses all the time and see how those guys were living. <laughs> and, they, and it was like, they were always cooking something, always, uh, they were always doing something. Hey man, I know we give them a hard time, but you know as well as I do. When we're on those scenes where we need them, we're like, "Come on, fire where you at, man." <laughs> <laughs> I've been standing at scenes, uh, praying that they would show up quickly. So I, I totally, especially the volunteers, I always give them their roses and always give them their credit because we have a lot of volunteers, EMS um, volunteers out here. Uh, we don't have as many paid departments as we ha I, most of them are volunteers and we live in a pretty populous area. Right. Right. Yeah. No, the volunteers are, it's funny because uh, we have a volunteer force within our agency called the posse and those dudes put in about 2,500 hours a month. Wow. The people of our County. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. And, and that's because they love, us. that's because they love our country and they, and they don't want to see it turn into another country that's south of the border. <laughs> right, right. No, they, they, uh, they definitely love to serve. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, what's the wildest case that you were ever involved in that you can actually speak about that's, you know, closed now or, or the craziest thing you ever saw or the 
that that's actually that you know you can talk about. <laughs> I've seen some crazy stuff, as as people will see in the book. There's some crazy stories in there. I think the one that always sticks out to me because people ask like, what's what's the one crazy story, even if it's from the book? And uh, we were in a chase one night, and this story is in the book as well. Um, it was actually one morning early. We had been up all night working out there trying to uh, interdict some uh, some cartel dudes that were trying to bring some dope up. And uh, we were about to call it good for the day. And we can, had kind of grouped up out in the middle of the desert in this area. And uh, we're talking and BSing and just, you know, kind of smoking and joking and getting ready to go home for the morning. And I hear what I think is a jet, right? I hear this just what is that? And so I start looking around and even though Arizona is kind of flat out in the desert, there's still these, these peaks and valleys uh, yep. that are just, you know, you, you can't tell they're there until you're in the thick of it. And so I kind of walk over where I can see over this little mound. And what I see is two uh, Ford trucks, quad cabs coming at us at about 90 miles an hour down a dirt road. And they don't know we're there. And so we start scrambling and uh, we end up in a chase with them. Well, it just so happens that one of the trucks looks exactly like the undercover truck that I'm driving. <laughs> so you've got a red Ford and kind of a root, bound, a root beer brown Ford and then my root beer brown Ford. And at some point we're chasing them and they're, they're doing donuts and stuff in the middle of the desert and they're trying to lose us. And at one point the red Ford comes head on with me out of the dust cloud and we come face to face with each other and basically pass driver door to driver door. And I can see the bad guy and he's looking at me like, how the hell did that white guy get our truck? Yeah. I, I just know that's what he's thinking. Cause I can see the confused look on his face as he passes me. And I'm in a truck that looks just like the other truck that he was partnered up with. And uh, then I flip around and the chase is on and we end up uh, chasing him till he wrecks. And he had a whole truck full of dope there. But uh, it, I, I just always remember, I can go right back and see in his face as I pass. And I just, I thought it was the funniest thing because I knew how confused he was as to why I was driving the other dope load. And he had that is a great story. That is a great story. I love that. I can't wait to read it. Um, that would that would make for an amazing scene if someone does produce that movie or a show, whatever it is. Um What's the biggest uh, bust you guys ever had that you remember? Oh, man. Um, well, you got to remember, too. So back when, when, when we're talking about my book era, that was like 2009, 10, 11, even into 12. So it was kind of that time frame. And back then, uh, we had a lot less uh, Ill or uh, legal marijuana, right? And so marijuana was a cash crop of the Sinaloans. And so we were dealing with metric tons of marijuana coming through from Mexico. And so those dope loads would typically be anywhere from two to 5,000 pounds a load. And That's so crazy. We'd be out in the middle of the desert and like that truck that I just described that wrecked out, I think he ended up having about 1,800 pounds of marijuana in his truck. And That's a whole car. That's a small car. Yeah, yeah right. So they, they would have just, it would be packed everywhere you could imagine. Um, and so those became very typical for us, those 18, 2,000 pound loads. Um, but I think like the hard drugs, one of the biggest I remember is a, uh, a, and this was a desert load. So they had backpacked it up and then loaded it into vehicles on, off the I-8, which runs through our County. Um, and that was about 196 pounds of meth. And I think there was about 50 pounds of heroin in that one at the time.
time. That's wild. Now, now everything is laced with fentanyl. Now fentanyl is like the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And fentanyl pills. I mean, we see M thirties just all day long in the, you know, a boat is a thousand pills and you'll see multiple boats uh, in, in these packs and in the cars and they don't even hide it anymore. So like if you're talking highway interdiction, you'll find a backpack full. So you'll have 5,000, 10,000 pills just in a backpack sitting in the back seat. They don't even try and hide it. It's for personal use, Your Honor. It's for personal use. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go to Narco uh, when I was trying to get promoted to detective, and uh, they sent me to special victims. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah so I know, I know, I know. I just I never got to fulfill that dream. I'm always uh, a little envious of anyone that, worked it and it seems like everyone i talk to has worked narco at some point in their career uh i just that 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 phase it passed me and then after i got out of special victims i went to general squad and i was just like i didn't have the desire anymore to work narco it was just like after dealing with um you know pedophiles and 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 physically abused children i just the desire wasn't that it wasn't there anymore. And then, and then I, my drive to go out and work, uh, you know, like larceny cases from home Depot, it just wasn't there. Like I was just mentally, mentally checked out, mentally checked out, mentally burnt out. It just, and that's what my, uh, that's what my signature talk is all about. It's, uh, can I even do 10 more years? Cause at the time I had about 10 years left on the mortgage, uh, 10 years until my youngest son moved out about, and uh, I—that was the question I was asking. Can I? Can I even do ten more years? Because I was so burnt out and bored, and I just had like a bigger vision for where I could go with my, with my career and and with my story. You know, like who who hasn't been at work and been bored? You know, so many people can relate. Like everyone thinks about the exciting times, but it's really ninety percent boredom. Like, like you guys have been out there all night waiting, just chewing the shit, talking with the guys. That's the fun part of the job. You know, those, those chase moments, they only happen less than 5%, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure, dude. I mean, we spent way more, especially even when I was undercover, because I did undercover for a while and you're doing 90% of your time is on surveillance and stuff. And and like five to 10% is kicking doors and taking down bad guys. The rest is paperwork, surveillance, bugs, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So then I wanted to finish my career in electronics and, um, electronic surveillance, Mm -hmm. but there's no openings. So I had to, uh, I had to resign myself like, all right, what else am I going to do if I can't do that? And like, I'm just going to have to turn up I'm going to have to turn up my appearances on podcasts. I'm going to have to turn up the number of guests that I, I'm just going to have to turn up on myself. You know, everyone has to have a plan for when they get out. And it sounds like you have a solid plan for what you're going to do when you do finally pull the plug. I'm trying, I'm trying. It's, it's, uh, I'll tell you this, man, I've had some good mentors and I've had some good life coaches. Uh, I was lucky enough back in about the 2010, 2011 era, um, a friend of mine introduced me to some of uh, SEAL Team 6 guys. And uh, a lot of those guys were on the tail end of their time on the teams. 
and uh, a couple of them had become friends over time now. And as they transitioned out of the military, um, what they told me and what I've seen is that it is much like our transition out of law enforcement because you come from this thing where it's almost your identity. Yes. Uh, and it's who you become. And it's a very structured world. Uh, it's a very uh, tight brotherhood. Uh, yes. And even, even though people will challenge that brotherhood thing because it, it, that's a double-edged sword, right? Because everybody that's in the business knows this. Uh, we are very tight when it comes to critical incidents, but we can be uh, so mean and tearing each other down when it comes to just normal stuff, right? And uh, what I learned from those guys, it, it was much the same. When they were active team members doing their team thing, they were on point, man. I mean, they're the tip of the spear. Uh, but a lot of times outside of that realm, uh, those relationships weren't as great. And so I see that in law enforcement as well. Uh, and, and I don't think we take care of one another enough. And I don't think we teach one another enough. And that's one of the things I talk a lot about with culture change, right, is that um, we tend to want to hold on to information. We think somehow it makes us more valuable uh, instead of just trying to share with everybody, like, because we're all going to do with it what we do with it. And, and there's no, you know, there's not going to be two people that use it the same and exploit information the same. And uh, just, you know, they're going to, everybody's going to have their own path. And so uh, a big thing for me was sucking in as much knowledge from dudes that had went through it already. And again, luckily I have some good friends that were good mentors and they've kind of told me like, dude, don't hit the finish line and then try and figure it out. You got to figure it out now as you approach your last like five years or so, start setting that up now so that really your transition is like a year or two before you finish. And you've already kind of mentally made that transition. Mentally transitioned. You already have some stuff in the works where you can step out of one and into the other and it's going to keep you busy enough uh, to do that new thing, whatever that new thing is. And a, a big thing I had to learn, and I think this has probably been over the last decade, is start associating with people outside of this profession. And yes, uh, especially over the last probably two years, I've really done that. And in a, and I've, I've started to do it in a bigger way where I'm actually going out and networking with dudes that are multimillionaires or billionaires. Yes. Because yes. They know what they're doing. They've done something right. They figured it out and I want to learn from them. And the funny thing is this dude, uh, again, coming from our profession where people kind of want to hold on to secrets and, and don't want others to succeed, those dudes are different. They clap for you when you succeed and they'll do everything they can to open doors for you and help you succeed. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that yeah. so crazy? It is. That's so crazy to me that uh, the most successful people, people think that they want to hold on to things and they're so giving and it's part of the reason why they are so successful. Right, right. Absolutely. And so, you know, for me, just trying to break out of this, because uh, I've been institutionalized, do 30 years in this profession as a government employee, you really do get institutionalized to that yes. way of thinking. And if you and collecting a check every two weeks oh, is, yeah. uh, it's golden, it's golden handcuffs. That security is part of the reason why we signed up for the job. Um but it's also the thing that keeps you comfortable and in inside of a, a, a certain box. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, 
it's tough to break out of that box because again, yeah. you're, you're breaking out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, again, with the book, that's where I kind of started it. I said, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And, uh, once I did that, um, I said, okay, I'm going to keep going with this and try and continue to break out. But a, a, another thing I found myself doing, and I think this is fairly common, uh, amongst just guys is, being self-deprecating, right? And, and uh, yes. doubting myself and saying I'm not good enough, especially when you step into a room. When I go into a room of other dudes like me that have done what I consider heroic things um, and have worked undercover, worked SWAT, stuff like that, I walk in and I think like, who am I? Who am I to talk to these dudes about whatever I'm going to talk to them about? Yep. But then you realize when you do those talks afterwards, you'll get those guys coming up to you and you're like, man, I really appreciated your talk. You know, it hit some, some points home with me. And so you realize you got to stop, you got to stop worrying about, you know, how you look to others or what people think about you. You just got to, because they need, they need to hear your story. They need, they actually need it. Right. And that's what I try to tell as many people as possible is that you have a story. It has value. You are enough right now. And if you just share your story, you'd be surprised at who you can help and who, whose life it can touch. You know, like as soon as you said stepping into a room, um, I was in a room with a lot of multimillionaires and the guy who runs the room is a billionaire and the owner of a sports team. And he allowed me to tell my story and to share it. And after I shared my story, he told me, uh, to get in contact with his assistant and he gave me a cell phone number and I was like flying on cloud nine for the next week because I was like, I was like, man, that's the power of sharing your story. And then when you, when you put yourself out there, people offer their help and they, they want to see you succeed. If you just be brave enough to put yourself out there, who was it that told you to write a book or who planted that seed? Well, there was a couple people, but uh, I'll tell you one of the big pushing factors was my sheriff uh, because he's written a couple of books and uh, I watched him go through it. I watched him do it. And, you know, I'm his second in command. So we're we have a, a very good relationship and I consider him a good friend. And uh, as I was telling some of these stories, because he and I, our first year in office together where he was the sheriff and I was essentially his undersheriff. Uh, we got to know each other a lot more because we, we were not friends before that. We we just kind of knew who each other were. So we got to know each other. I was telling him some of these stories, and he was the one that was kind of like, dude, you have got to put this stuff down in a book. This is great, and, and people need to know this. Um, so he was one of the big driving factors. And then, of course, you know, my wife, I have a wife of 30 years, and uh, she was another big motivating factor. Everything I've ever done, man, she's been like, let's go. And uh, so she was another big factor. And then Katie Pavlich, she uh, she wrote my forward for me. Her and I are friends. And uh, she was another one that was, you know, rah, rah on me and, and trying to connect any dots that she could for me. And she really helped me out through the process as well. I'm always looking for uh, mentors. So if you have anyone that fits that uh, category, you know, that's uh, super successful, please connect us. If you have anyone so I speak to chiefs, sheriffs, um, I speak to FBI agents, uh, directors, you know, down to the rookie PO. I speak to all levels 
because I honestly believe that they all have a story that's valuable and I want to hear their story. I want to dig into it. And if you know anyone with a great story, please connect us. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, man. I I put that out to my listeners also. And to your point, uh, just a few minutes ago, um, on how you connected with your, your, uh, billionaire, uh, same thing, dude, I, uh, where I was, I was actually sitting around a campfire, um, and I was talking to a young guy who was a young entrepreneur and, uh, just kind of like, what do you do? Oh, you know, I'm a whatever. And what do you do? And oh, I'm a cop and, oh yeah, we're at, you know, the, and it starts going in a little more info, a little more info, a little more info. And then another guy sits down next to me and kind of like, Hey, who are you? And, and what do you do? And, um, kind of tell them and, and, uh, man, you've been doing it for that long. Yeah. And kind of the same thing, which I really appreciate because I feel like I look old, but everybody says, dude, you don't look your age. No, you don't. So, Cause you uh, kept yourself in shape. That's why. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's my wife too. I got to thank her for that. But, uh, uh, long, long story or a little bit shorter. Right? Short story. <laughs> but he, uh, ultimately he's like, so you want to talk about leadership like that's what you do i said yeah leadership culture change uh you know my cartel stuff because i know that well uh undercover work and all this so he kind of says let's let's just give me your resume real quick just walk me through your experience right so i just give him a quick breakdown of my resume and he's like good lord dude he goes you guys kill me he said your resume like you know how valuable you are and i was like no i don't like i don't feel valuable i just did some stuff but you know nothing great and he's like no, it was great, right? And so he starts getting in my head and starts talking me out of that self-deprecating stuff, right? He's like, no, you are great. Like, you don't realize your value and you don't realize how much your story could impact people. And uh, he's one of the ones that was like, dude, we're doing this. And so he started introducing me to people. And I'll tell you the last uh, probably three or four months, I've met some fantastic people that are just, just they want to help you. They want to see you succeed. And especially when you let them know I'm at the end of a career where I've served, you know, 30, 31 years, 32 years uh, serving my public. Those dudes really want to help those guys. And so it's it's a great way to get that stepping stone out of the career. I want to be one of the first from my audience to thank you for your many, many years of service. Um, I respect your time. So I'm just going to hit you with five last questions. And then right. hopefully in the future, we'll do a part two and we'll do a follow up. That's the, that's always the plan and the hope. Um, first question is you kind of already answered it, but what's your definition of a hero? Oh man. My definition of a hero, I think is anyone who faces their fears head on and just gets after it. I, I agree. I agree. Um, I also put the caveat that there has to be some degree of sacrifice and some degree of risk. If there's no risk, like, uh, Garbage men, they might get a little bit of risk of getting pricked by a needle, but they're not, they're not putting on a vest every day. Right, right. But, but, uh, but you know, here's what I know from, from just being a dude in the world is that uh, I, I agree with the risk and, and uh, that stuff. But I can also say this, that there are people that have very normal jobs that still do very heroic stuff because you'll have people that maybe they are not at physical risk, uh, risk of being hurt or anything like that, but they put themselves out there quite a bit to help children, to help less fortunate, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so there's a lot of sacrifice there. And I think the sacrifice in that case 
elevates them. Yes. Yes, I I agree with you. Uh, And this is why I put it out there because every now and then someone kind of changes my perspective a little bit and gives me something a little extra to think about. When uh, stress is at its highest and you're starting to feel like you're reaching a low point, how do you save yourself? How do you show yourself love? Well, working out is one of my big stress relievers. So uh, a good workout is always, you know, sweat it out and sweat out the hate. Uh, But I got to be honest, man, uh, one of the biggest things I've gotten back to in my life over the past decade that has helped me in all of those situations is my faith. Mm. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, A lot of people overlook that because uh, that is a source of strength that a lot of people don't understand. Um, I feel like a lot of people are losing that. My mother was of strong faith and, you know, I won't, I won't get into that. (laughs) She's in heaven now, but um, yeah, you you mentioned Jeet Kune Do, uh, JKD. Huge, huge Bruce Lee fan. I have pictures of me rolling with Hoist Gracie. Oh, I've yeah. been a fan. I know. I know. That's like one of my most favorite pictures. And um, and I have to find it so that I can post it to social media so I don't ever lose it again. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in the digital files. And I may have the hard copy somewhere too. But I have to find that picture. It's me and Hoist rolling on a mat. And uh, I trained jujitsu for seven years. And now I'm just a huge fan. I don't train anymore. Everyone always asks me, why don't you train anymore? Because I like going to the gym and I like having my body fully functioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same here. When I did J- JKD, I was a young cop. I did it probably for the first half of my career, enjoyed it. Uh, but I sustained a lot of injuries. And yeah. I said, man, you know, I still got a career. I got, I got yeah. a career. <laughs> I felt too old at too young of an age. So similar, similar. I was like, you know what? I enjoy working out. I will just, uh, break a sweat in the gym. I go every single day and without fail. And I walk, if I don't feel like training weights, then I I'll just, you know, I'll just walk, ride the bike real slow for 15 minutes and maybe do stairs for five or 10 minutes. And then I'm done. And then it's like, all right, I put in some work today. Um, would you ever consider, starting a com- coaching company as like a additional stream of income or cons- consulting or mentoring, you know, that, yeah, that type of, absolutely, dude. I mean, yeah. you know, like we've talked about already. Um, I think that's kind of where I'm headed anyways. Yeah. I believe, I believe that's in your future. I see it. Uh, what's your greatest power? What's your strength? Best ability. Ooh, man. I know it's a tough question. What would your wife say it was? <laughs> Aggressive driving. <laughs> Aggressive driving. <laughs> I tell her. Uh, um, you get to the destination. Man, I, I'll tell you. She she says she says you know that I drive uh, aggressively, but I told her, babe, and and uh, you know again you'll you'll read some of these stories in my book. I said, but I've driven on back dirt roads at 70, 80 miles an hour under night vision with no lights, like daytime asphalt. Easy money, baby. Come on. <laughs> But my, to, be, uh, to be honest with you, I think I think one of my best abilities that I've really honed over over probably the past, uh, especially five years, but maybe even decade, has been my ability to kind of uh, negotiate through difficult conversations and uh, and lead from a perspective of a servant 
rather than you know leading from an entitled position. That's massive. And I think uh, I think that's been huge because what I've learned in this profession, especially, is uh, relationships become the most important thing, and and how I how I make people feel, how I mentor people, and how I uh, when when me and somebody break contact, I want them to feel as though I loved into them, and that I added something rather than took something. I love that, brother. I really do. Um, my, my lady, she calls it cruiser driving. She's like, Oh, you're doing that, doing that cruiser driving, right? (laughs) That's what she calls it. Uh, and just for my last question for you, just for fun, if you had a comic superpower, like, uh, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, uh, you know, Wolverine, what, what would it be and why? (laughs) Uh, my mind went immediately dirty. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you've been watching did you watch the boys on uh prime yeah um man super i think it would be to fly man because yeah. i think it would just be cool to be able to get up there and do your because i know i was a motor for a while too right and one of the nicest things was just to get on my motorcycle for a long ride uh, put in my earbuds and just close myself off to the world and enjoy the breeze of the city. I feel like you can do that out west. You can't do that in the northeast because you will die very quickly. <laughs> there's nowhere. There's nowhere to ride unless maybe you're upstate. Um, maybe maybe Vermont or Maine. I don't know if you've ever been up there. It's a little bit more desolate. Uh, out here in New York, any anywhere in like the tri-state area, Jersey, Connecticut, you will die very quickly if you if you ride. Even if you just go go out on a like a on a daily, on yeah, a daily ride. Saying. Flying, man, flying would be legit. You just get up above everybody and do your thing. So I say this almost every episode, but I want all the powers of the mind. I feel like if you can lift things with your mind, then you can you can make yourself fly. Uh, you could set things on fire with your, you know, pyrokinesis, telekinesis, and the ability to, um, calm people down, you know, see, I'm that guy that would waste all three of my genie wishes on some stupid stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, flying is, flying is definitely cool. I, I, uh, I had a choice of being a pilot or being a cop and I chose like my dream was being a pilot, but I chose, being a cop because someone had planted that seed and I thought it was the quicker career to get into. And, and, and it it ended up being the quicker, easier route. I didn't have to go to college for, I did end up getting a degree in criminal justice, but I didn't have to go to college for an additional uh, four years to get a commercial pilot's license, which would have been a lot more expensive also. Uh, Funny enough, my, my, yeah, I was gonna say my job that I'm on now, they uh they do pay for tuition reimbursement and and they uh they don't require a degree. So <laughs> I did back to back academies. I did the city and then I did my, my current agency back to back. Yeah. You only did one academy your whole career? Uh no, I did two. Uh yeah. I, well, the first one I almost completed and uh about I think it was about three or four weeks before we were due to graduate, 
me and about three other dudes got in some trouble and we got sent back to our agency. But then uh. I, uh, my sheriff at that time brought us in and uh, I was one of the guys that just got kind of caught up in their mess. Yeah. So he was like, look, uh, I'm not going to send you back to that academy because the director doesn't like you guys. So I'm going to send you to another one. So uh, I went back to our jail for a few months and then he sent me back to the academy. So technically I got two under my belt, but. All right, all right. I talked to a lot of people. Last guy I spoke to, he had four academies. <laughs> That's brutal. That's brutal. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I ordered the book. I'm going to send it. You know, I'll definitely do a review on Amazon for you. Uh, that's, a, that's a guarantee. You don't have to worry about that. And um, I look forward to part two. All right, brother.